Hi, I'm Chris McBrien, a Gen Xer, and the pop culture from my generation is awesome. And I'm Yance Eaton, a millennial, and the pop culture from my generation is dope. Episode 87, Unbreakable Movie Review. Chris McBride, along with Derek Myers, caveman himself, as always. Yancey Eaton actually is going to join us next week, caveman. But in the meantime, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How are you doing this week, Chris? I'm doing great. I was actually just before I came downstairs to jump in the studio here and record with you. Uh, my wife and I were actually watching Three's Company. Nice. Who, who was the who was the female lead beside Joyce DeWitt? Because I know that changed a few times over the course of the show. It was one of the later ones, and I was we were just my wife and I were just talking about this because uh, I never really liked the older ones with like Suzanne Summers and the Ropers. I'm more of a fan of the later ones with Terry, you know Priscilla Barnes, and yep. with Mr. Furley, and, and that's Mr. what it was. Furley. Yeah, for sure. And it was funny enough. So the 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 the, the the guest, I guess, on that on this week's episode, you know, um, was there was this girl that was was interested in Jack and she wanted to change him and, and turn him into a different man. And, and I'm watching it and I go, oh, man, I know that girl. That's uh, she was the, the, the wife on uh, Summer Rental with John Candy. And my wife oh, jeez. Like, you're, you're sure? I'm like, yeah, I think her name's Kelly Austin. We go and look it up on IMDb. She's like, how do you know this stuff? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I love this old stuff. What can I say? I'm like ingrained <laughs> in this stuff. Uh, before we carry on, I do want to mention you can find us on Twitter at C. McBrien. You'll find Derek at Amaron underscore DM. You can go to popcosureworld.com. All of our contact information is there. And if you listen to the show on iTunes, Please just take a minute and review the show for us. That would be really, really wonderful. Um, but uh, so Three's Company is what's new in my world. Anything new for you? And then I also would remind me before we get started, I want to give you a bit of a shout out, a little kudos for you. But uh, okay. what's, what's new in your world? Uh, you know what? Not a whole lot new in the way of pop culture. I mentioned last week I've been binge watching the show Billions. Oh, yes. And uh, so there are three seasons in Billions. Uh, I'm about halfway through season three. So by uh, the next time we record, I should be done. I'm loving it. The show, in my opinion, is getting better and better with every episode. Uh, I'm both excited to see where the show goes and disappointed that I only have like five more episodes because then I'm going to have to wait another year. And, you know, I, I mentioned to you, I think it was even last week on the show, I just finished up Ozark, the season two. So we're done with that. And I'm looking for something new for my wife and I to watch, sort of a binge watch kind of thing. So if anybody wants to tweet me at C. McBrien, McBrien is I-E-N, send me a tweet and tell me what show my wife and I should start binge watching because we're looking for something. I'm not sure what it is yet. We've kind of thrown a couple ideas around. Um, I obviously want to go back and watch Happy Days. Or the love boat. Um, she's telling me, no, we can't do that. We have to watch something new. And I'm like, okay. So any ideas, you can send it out. I wanted to give you a little bit of a shout out, though. Okay. A couple of shows ago, we did our top five Queen songs. Because both you and I love Queen. And we always Indeed. have. Like, yes, just, They're so good. So, uh, so we did, you know, our top five Queen songs. Because, you know, in line with the movie Bohemian Rhapsody and all that stuff. And, you know, sometimes I, I know this is going to come as a bit of a shock to you, Cave, and anyone that listens to the show. That I get a little bit stuck on things in the past. And I just kind of like get into a groove with old stuff. And I, I just don't really change my mind on too many things. I don't expand my horizons very much, I guess, for lack of a better term. And so sometimes I have trouble going back and looking at old stuff through a different lens. And I get stuck on things that I like. And then and that's, that, that's it. And when we did our top five list, I got to just say, you know what? You, you are absolutely right. 
I, I, and I, I kind of like missed the boat on this one. But when it comes to the top five Queen songs, um, Don't Stop Me Now is probably their best song. And and you mentioned that and I didn't. And I really, you know, because I think when I was younger, I didn't really love the song that much. And yeah. then I went back and because you mentioned that as one of your top Queen songs. And I was like, really? And so I went back and listened to it and just I listened to it once and I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Really? That is phenomenal. And and then it came back to me, too, in the movie. They played that during the or the closing credits. They did indeed. Yes. And, and, and that, that was one of the so things good. I said. Oh. When I when I hear that song, it always makes me happy. It if does. If I have a bad day, it makes it, you know, it's just a little glimmer of sunshine in what might be a bad day. The music is so positive and it, it's so memorable. It's an earworm. As soon as you, for me anyway, when I hear it, it makes me feel good. And then I find I'm sort of humming it and singing it to myself the rest of the day. And when we watched Bohemian Rhapsody, the movie, and we came out, they played that over the closing credits. Uh, when we left the movie, I'm humming that in the car the whole mm-hmm. way home. And my wife's like, okay, change the track. Because <laughs> like, I was saying it. I must have hummed the whole thing like three or four times on the way home. She's like, okay, that's enough of that. You got to listen to something else. I'm, you know, it's a great song, but you're not Freddie Mercury. Stop singing. So. <laughs> and not to rehash Queen again, you know, because we've got a, our own topic this week. But, you know, the thing is, they had this ability, this uncanny ability to do over the top, like just completely over the top stuff, over the top music, lyrics, everything, and get away with it. A lot of bands try and go over the top and they come off as just being campy. But Queen did over the top and they just did it so good. Like there's just something about them. There's that intangible quality that real art has that you just can't put your finger on. You know, you look at a wonderful painting and you're like, I don't know the intricacies of painting and the styles, but I know that's really wonderful. And there's something about their music that strikes that chord to me. I think if anyone else tried it, it just wouldn't be the same. And this was really driven home for me because if you haven't seen this on YouTube, go look it up. Do you ever watch The Late Late Show with James Corden? I don't watch this show because, you know, of course, I just watch old stuff, right? But I found this thing on YouTube where he is doing his show and he's talking about how Adam Lambert, you know, from American Idol has joined Queen and is on tour with them and he's singing with them. And James Corden is like picking on him, saying, "Ah, I could be better than him. So, of course, Adam Lambert walks into the studio and he's like, oh, what's going on? He's like, you think you're better than me? And this James Corden's like, yeah, and I know I'm better than you. I'd be a way better. Front- I'd be a way better frontman of Queen than you. And he's like, yeah, well, why don't we have a why don't we have a showdown right now on your stage? And he's like, we can't. Queen's not here. And they pull back the curtain, and there's Queen. So, <laughs> and they go toe to toe singing the songs, and it's so good. And they're both really, really talented singers. But the thing that struck home, and the reason why I bring it up, is because I watched it with my wife, and she's like, oh my god, that Adam. Like she goes, like James Corden can sing, but Adam Lambert is just so so good. And I'm like, yeah, he is, but I think you need to see something. And I put it over to the video of Queen doing Don't Stop Me Now. And I said, listen to this. And when you put it back to back like that, when you when you listen to Adam Lambert saying, you're like, oh, my God, the guy's got great pipes. He's unbelievable range, pitch perfect. But then when you play him back to back with Freddie Mercury singing, like there's just no comparison. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's unbelievable. A good, it's a great kind of comparison. Oh, it's just crazy yeah. when you put them back to back. But uh, kudos to you. Don't Stop Me Now. It's such a good song. It's so good. You were right. I was wrong. So anyway, on that note, let's get started. 
I wanted to go back and watch The Love Boat. I'm going to give you a lot of reasons to think I'm nerdy tonight. I've never actually watched ALF. Jerry Seinfeld's mother. We were actually just talking about ALF in my house last week. And I knew you'd be on my side about all this. Chris, he normally has the textbook answer. The Love Boat. He obviously has not read the science fiction textbook. Very cool. But is it, Chris? But is it cool? I'll settle oh, down, young yep. man. I do love this movie. And yes, Yancey, it is cool, by the way. Okay, so this week we're taking a look at the 2000 film Unbreakable. Now, you suggested this movie to me, uh, Cabe, and I'd never seen it. So why don't you start us off a little bit? Like, I want to know why did you pick this movie? What did you like about it? Like, why did you think it was worth reviewing for the pod? So I'll I'll let you kind of take things away first, if you don't mind. I don't mind at all. One thing I like, it's listening to myself talk, uh, as the listeners are probably well aware of by now. Okay, so let me give you a little – let's assume for a minute you have never seen this movie. You don't know what this movie is about. Uh, I think it, it might actually sort of fall in that dead zone between the millennial and Gen X where some of the listeners are you know, a little bit older or a little bit younger. They may not remember this movie one way or the other. So Unbreakable uh, came out in 2000. It was written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan who people uh, – hopefully remember from his phenomenal film The Sixth Sense. And if you've seen Unbreakable, hopefully you remember him from this film as well. Um, it, uh, the, it, this is basically a uh, superhero movie before superhero movies were a thing. So this is before um, John Favreau did Iron Man. This is before The Avengers. This is before Captain America. This is before The Dark Knight. This is still at a point where the sort of the high point of comic book movies was 1989's Tim Burton Batman, uh, which was great in its own right, but does not necessarily uh, play on the same level as the movies of today when we talk about superhero movies. So this this came out in a in a time period where there were no superhero movies on the landscape and there was no expectation of what it can or should be. Now, it does not tell the story uh, of a pre-existing comic book character. It is not an IP that's been brought from a print medium to the film medium. M. Night Shyamalan created this story out of his own imagination, although I'm sure he was influenced by a number of other things. And this was an original story featuring original characters that took place in a real world setting. And the 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 story sort of with the broad strokes is it begins with um, a character – uh, a child is born and his bones – he's – you know, as a baby, he's born with broken bones. And you find out through a series of quick flashbacks that as this child grew up, he has this genetic condition where his bones are exceptionally brittle. So anytime he has a, a – you know, uh, what would normally just be a trip and fall, he would break his arm or break his leg. And um, the, the children in his school tease him by calling him Mr. Glass because he's as fragile as glass. And – so we, we start the movie by meeting this character and then we flash forward 20 years, 30 years, and we cut to Bruce Willis's character uh, who is on a train and the train crashes. And we find out that he is the sole survivor, survivor of this train crash. But not only that, he doesn't have a scratch, he doesn't have a bruise, there's no injuries. He is unharmed. And everyone's like, oh my god, it's a miracle. This man literally walked away from a train wreck that killed hundreds of other people. And – you get the um, uh, interaction, friendship, and juxtaposition of these two characters. Uh, the other one played by Samuel L. Jackson, uh, uh, whose character's name is Elijah Price, uh, quote-unquote Mr. Glass, who has these bones that break very easily. And he goes to Bruce Willis's character and basically says, hey, I heard you survived this train crash. 
you know, I have this condition where my bones are quite brittle. I've always wondered if there could be someone who is the opposite of me, whose bones are exceptionally hard, who, you know, where I fall down and I take serious damage, somebody could l- live in, through a train crash and walk away unscathed. And so the movie then follows these two characters, mostly the uh, the Bruce Willis character, as he's starting to question whether or not he is literally unbreakable or whether he is just fortunate given the circumstances he's very skeptical he's uh um you know he doesn't see himself as a superman type character who runs into the birding building to save the 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 children kind of thing uh you know for quite a bit of the movie he thinks that the samuel jackson character is crazy this guy's cuckoo bananas uh, I don't have anything to do with him. He's potentially a, a lunatic. My family could be in jeopardy by even being associated with this guy. But through the course of the movie, Bruce Willis starts to slowly accept that, you know what? Maybe I am special. Maybe I, I have a calling. Um, you know, he you learn through the course of the movie that he has these like premonitions or flashes of people doing bad things and through the course of his life he's just sort of attributed this to instinct but he has put himself in a position where he can be helpful to people he works as a security guard at a in a university at the football stadium uh and then through the course of the movie you get the development of these characters um it does sort of have i don't want to say a twist ending but the ending is maybe not as telegraphed as you might think so i don't necessarily want to ruin it but i don't think we can talk about this in great detail without so if you haven't seen this movie and so far you think oh that might be interesting pause the podcast go watch the movie and then come back and finish listening to the episode oh yeah we always give spoiler alerts yeah so i'm gonna leave it at that chris i i'm curious as Mm -hmm. to whether you like this or not i know that um you know, superhero movies aren't necessarily your thing, but I don't necessarily think you're predisposed to dislike them. Uh, I think you probably uh, are a fan of Bruce Willis and Samuel Jackson's work, at least some of it. Yep. So, and I know you like The Sixth Sense a lot. Oh, I but like I that know movie that, a lot. Yeah. I know that M. Night Shyamalan has certainly had some misses along the way as well. And I'm curious as to whether or not you sort of feel this falls in the, you know, hit the mark, miss the mark, close to the mark. Uh, I, I'm really curious to hear where you landed on this. So take it away. Let me know what you think. Uh, a couple of things that I'll uh, I'll mention on that. Um, so first of all, you mentioned something there. You said this is a superhero movie uh, before superhero movies sort of became a thing. But I would just challenge that a little bit and say, no, to me, the superhero movie that was a superhero movie before they became a thing was 1978 Superman with Christopher Reeve. God, I love that movie. Okay, um, I'll give you that one. I so, will definitely acknowledge yeah. that. And yes, it, it was great. God, Superman 1, Superman 2, fantastic films. So good. But oh. but with Superman, you have a recognized character before anyone buys a movie ticket. You show them the S emblem. People have a familiarity with that. So this is a movie that was literally just sold on the name and the pre-existing track record from The Sixth Sense of the writer-director and of the two lead cast members of Samuel Jackson, Bruce Willis, who you know had done a couple of movies, they did were in Die Hard Three. Uh, they were both appeared in Pulp Fiction. Um, so again, you've got two, you know, pretty big movie stars lending their name. And obviously, Bruce Willis was in uh, Sixth Sense, also M Night Shyamalan film as well. So that was sort of the selling point of this movie, because again, when it came out, the internet was relatively in its infancy, and so. You know, it, it needed to it needed to have a hook without giving too much away. And so, you know, the movie, I think, did well, but was not a huge runaway hit. But I think over time it has found its footing and uh, has a very loyal uh, following. 
I would say that, you know, sometimes I have these days where like, I just can't shut my brain off. You know what I mean? It's the end of a long day and it's at night and I'm trying to fall asleep. And sometimes I have to try a couple of different things. Like sometimes I read, you know, that helps me. Uh, sometimes I drink warm milk, but now I can actually add watching Unbreakable to the list of things that will put me to sleep because for uh, me, this movie was boring, man. Uh, oh, it was boring. I've mentioned this on the show before. I usually watch these movies with my wife, and this was the case here. And it was funny, whenever Yancey used to nominate films for the podcast, my wife would, like, watch the movie with me, and then she would be like, oh, man, this movie sucks. It's a dystopian future crap. And and this time she was, like, watching it, and she's like, oh, my God, this movie sucks. It's nerd crap. And so, <laughs> so apparently, Caveman, you nominate nerd crap for me to watch. Just wanted to share that with you. <laughs> I hope we don't get into a groove with this uh, nerd crap stuff, but like the way that Yancey did with his dystopian films. Um, so yeah, I mean, a couple of things like like you mentioned, like uh, th- that I like the Sixth Sense. I love the Sixth Sense. I thought it was great. I thought it was just masterful. And then also, as I mentioned before, um, I the only other M Night Shyamalan movie I'd ever seen was The Village. I went to see it in the theater for some reason, and I absolutely hated it. And so I was curious as to where this would fall on the spectrum more towards Sixth Sense or more toward The Village. Unfortunately, it's a bit more towards The Village, but it's not as bad as The Village. Like, oh my God, that movie, The Village. Have you seen that, the movie, The Village? Yeah, I saw it in the theater as well. I hated it. It was awful. That story, that stupid quote, quote, unquote, twist ending. And Adrian Brody, you know what the problem with Adrian Brody in the movie was? He went full and you never, ever, you never go full and before I get hate mail on this, it's a line. Say, you can't say that word anymore, Chris. I know. It's a line from Tropic Thunder, right? Obviously. But Adrian Brody was awful in the village and he, he never should have went full. But this movie, I have some questions for you. Like you just mentioned sure. the, the opening scene on the train. And, and it, I, I, I'm curious to know because M. Night Shyamalan to me seems like, you know, he, he, he had such a big hit with the sixth sense, you know, his first, you know, big feature film. Right. And then because it had that big twist ending, it it just feels like he's got to go back there again. He's got to go. But the other thing to me is that Shyamalan, and I don't know if this is, you know, maybe I'm just, this is just me. It seems like he almost feels like he has like a Hitchcockian thing going on with him. You know, like he, and not just because, you know, he's, he does a cameo in the film. He likes to keep the audience guessing and all this. So I think in some ways he thinks he's like Hitchcock. Right. So therefore, he uses a lot of style in his film. And I want to know what's the significance of that opening scene on the train. Remember, there's that attractive woman comes up and sits down beside and then he takes his ring off. And mm-hmm. then he's like awkwardly talking to her. And like, I, 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 I mean, I get the fact it kind of sets up the fact that he's estranged from his wife. But what the hell does it have to do with the plot of the film? It To me, it just seems so disconnected from everything and for a guy that is kind of this Hitchcockian guy every frame means something it's a piece of the puzzle of putting this together and I I understand that the train has to crash right in order to set up the fact that he's invincible I get that but I don't understand what the interaction with the woman had to do with anything it seemed very odd to me and I, I don't know if it was just an attempt at some misdirection you know, done on his uh, on purpose by the director because he he does seem to use some misdirection in this film. So I don't know. I have no idea. Any 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 ideas? So, on that? I, I, well, a little bit. I think that uh, um, one of the things that I believe that he was trying to do with this story was really um, really nail the fact that Bruce Willis's character David Dunn is 
uh, he, he's got a wife and a son, but there is significant problems going on with this relationship. The, the husband and wife are living in separate bedrooms in the house. There's clearly some sort of issue or problem. At a later point, the wife uh, sort of approaches him to try and say, like, you know, I think we should start again. Like, it, it sort of implies, or well, I don't think it implies it. It, it clearly implies that whatever the problem was seems to have been her fault, or at least the perception is it was her fault. Uh, almost like he was the wronged party and and he's he's been hurt uh it seems like they were getting ready to to split up or get divorced because at a point in the movie he talks about the the story takes place in philadelphia he's on the train ride home from new york to philadelphia he talks about having gone to new york to apply for this job and um uh, you know it's 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 sort of leans back to what we talked about last week in the uh, in the stan lee episode where I think M. Night Shyamalan is trying to demonstrate that this character is a very realistic character with real-life problems. The fact that he may or may not be a superhero or may or may not have these superpowers doesn't make his life any better. Um, uh, if anything, it, it could make his life more complicated, which I think the Marvel comics – again, we talked about the last week – is one of the reasons that they've been successful is you have these real people with real problems and sometimes the powers get in the way. Like you think of Spider-Man, uh, you know, how many times does he have to uh, disappoint his friends and family and make up some lame excuse as to why he missed something important because he had to put on the Spider-Man costume and go stop a crime? Uh, you know, the, the idea that the greater good is what's needed. So I think the scene on the train is just there to emphasize that – Here's this guy. He's a little bit older. He's uh, clearly going through some marital problems, um, but he's awkward, right? Like he, as he tries to interact with this woman, she picks up right away that he's sort of very awkwardly trying to hit on her. Whether or not she saw that he had the wedding ring and then now he doesn't, it's like it sort of sends a red flag to her. And she's like, I'm going to go sit in a different seat. And, and I think it's just that part of the setup. Like, OK, where's the story going to go? Here's this regular guy who's on a train crash. And he walks away, and it's like, okay, let's see where this goes next. I, I guess I, I, I noticed. I, yeah, I guess I noticed the camera style in that opening scene too. It's very interesting, like how it's shot. Um, it's basically shot from in between the seats in front of Bruce Willis and the woman, yeah. almost yeah, yeah. voyeuristically. Like, it, like it's like you're peering in on their conversation. Like, it's, to me, it's very stylistic, but. I just didn't feel like there was a lot of substance to it. Um, like it was like there was no reason for it. It doesn't drive the story. It doesn't have any thematic importance other than just looking interesting. And then same thing. Another example that I, I made a note of was later on the movie when um, Samuel L. Jackson's character was a kid. Remember, he gets his first comic book. He has to go across the road yes. and open up the gift. And yes. the camera's directly overhead. It kind of spins around as he flips the comic book around. And it just feels like just this stylistic camera work just for the hell of it. Like it, it just, I don't know. There's something about the movie that at times the director just feels like he's trying to come off as artsy or something, but it just didn't work for me. I don't know. So um, let me, let me speak to that. Then. Please, so, please do. Yeah. Cause I'm curious to know. So I, from what and I've, I've done some, I've done a little bit of reading on this and some of it I sort of picked up on myself and some of this is just fan theory, but um, the, the, the feeling was that the, director deliberately shot in a style that would be reminiscent of comic book panels. So you have unusual angles of shots, like those shots between the seats at the beginning. You have scenes from, you know, the overhead of the comic book with the spinning. Um, and a lot of the, the, a lot of the shots, the camera is not um, set up parallel with the ground. It's like slightly askew. It's, it's characters in the foreground background a little bit um, to, to, to do that sort of forced perspective of some characters appearing larger and such. And, and the, the belief is that that was a deliberate choice by the director to 
subtly or in some cases not so subtly remind you that this is very much like a comic book story. Okay. Uh, and yep. even before the fact, before you get to a point where you you start to believe that, hey, is David Dunn a superhero? Does he have powers in the quote unquote, you know, superhero way? Or uh, again, with M. Night Shyamalan at the time, you were like, okay, well, there's going to be some sort of twist. Maybe the twist is he's not really super powered. So I, I think there was a certain amount of give and take from the audience at the time of you're taking this journey for the first time with these characters. And I'll admit it is slow. I actually... Uh, found when I was watching it this week, I'm like, I don't remember being this slow. Uh, so I'll give you that. But um, I, I think a lot of the the sort of uh, fancy, unusual camera work is a deliberate choice by the director to try and um, mimic a comic book panel. Okay, that's fine. I do got to say one thing. When it started out, you know, on that train, when, when the train crashed, and then he's the only one that survives the crash without like a single scratch, as you mentioned. My first thought when that happened was, I'm like, okay, he's dead. He really died, and he doesn't know he's dead. Boy, this M. Night Shyamalan sure is a one-trick pony. <laughs> <You know? laughs> now, luckily, that wasn't the case. Obviously, the movie went on. Right. But it kind of brings me also to the the, the final scene when, um, and again, you know, spoiler alerts, obviously, uh, when he's like, it's time we shook hands. And then they shake hands, and that's what he realizes. Oh, my God, you know, Samuel L. Jackson's character is really evil, and he's the one that did all this stuff, and, he, you know, he's a bad guy, and, he, you know, all this. And then, I, I again, it came back to me, and I, re- I realized, like, M. Night Shyamalan set himself up, you know, in a good way and in a bad way for his career with The Sixth Sense, because he set himself up as being, like, a director you got to reckon with, because, man, oh, man, this guy, you know, is the first guy, really, since Hitchcock, that's been able to just get you, you know? Yeah. And... But the problem is, so that's a wonderful thing. He set up his career wonderfully that way. But then it was also a detriment because now he feels like he's got to live up to it. And that was the thing I hated about the village. It's like, oh, they have this twist ending. Like, ah, oh, is that what this is all about? You just, so you're, you're this guy that just does a twist ending every movie. And that's what I, that scene felt like. And to me, it was driven home by the way that it shot. Because if you look at Bruce Willis's reaction, it looked, felt, style, everything the same as the end of the sixth sense his reaction you know like oh my god this is all it's been in front of me the whole time and i didn't see it this was the bad guy so it just felt a little stilted like i I feel bad for m night Shyamalan because he's been you know put on this pedestal with that first movie and it's just like you know it's like it's like a band that comes along and has a like an amazing hit it's like it kind of hangs around there them like an albatross you know and yeah. that's what i feel like the sixth sense did to this guy and in, in a lot of ways his his career's never recovered and, and the problem it's got to be tough as an artist to come out like that and and to just like hit a home run hit your masterpiece on your very first try because there's nowhere else to go but down the sixth sense is absolutely brilliant film brilliant film and it's funny because when i watched it for the first time um i remember thinking boy this movie is slow and boring and then the (laughs) end of the movie comes and it just like as soon as the reveal happens i'm like that son of a bitch that director he got me everything was there the red doorknob the girl not his wife not responding to it was all right in front of me the whole time you son of a bitch and it was just a wonderful experience to have in a theater and you know unfortunately that's he's been saddled with that ever since that's got to be tough i don't envy the guy because the expectations are always there and it'll be impossible to ever recreate that. He's tried a couple of times. He's got to go in a complete different direction. You know what he has to do? He should come up with like a comedy. 
or something like completely different that nobody would ever expect and just try to just be like, you know, an artist. I don't know. That's what he needs to do. He needs to just go a completely different way. I know that sounds crazy. So before he directed The Sixth Sense, mm-hmm. he wrote the movie Stuart Little, which is a children's movie okay. about the little mouse voiced by Michael J. Fox that moves in with the human family. Wasn't that like based on a book or something like that? So he I, think, I think it was. Okay. But he, he, he got the – The wrote, adapted screenplay, I guess. Yeah. So, so to your point, very different than any of the work that came after it and almost, almost sort of contrary to what you were just saying. It's like it's almost too bad that he didn't have a chance to do that work after the sixth sense work to sort of like be the cracker in your mouth to cleanse your palate right. and go, okay, let's see what he's got next. Instead of, I want more of what I got. Ooh, it wasn't as good. Ooh, that wasn't as good as that one. Ooh, that wasn't even as good as the one before that. Um, and it's like, he's just trying to do the same thing over and over and recreate that magic. You're right. Like, it'd be neat to see him maybe do a kid's film or something like that. So something completely different, you know, like a complete different genre would be interesting to see. And then maybe come back, you know, sort of refreshed, you know, and rejuvenated back into this genre again of this. You mentioned about Willis's character, how he's kind of basically depressed. I, I, I'm, I, I appreciate your take on his character because I, I saw it a different way. And I like the way you explain it. The fact that um, he didn't really take to his new kind of quote unquote superhero role all that well because it's a burden, which is cool. Because when I was watching, I'm thinking, OK, so he's basically depressed through the whole movie, right? His, his, he's almost catatonic. You know, for crying out loud, yeah. right? And at one point, I think, you know, Samuel L. Jackson's character says to him, like, like when you, every day when you wake up, are you are you unhappy? He's like, yep, every day I wake up, I'm unhappy. And then when he finds out he's a superhero, you know, he wakes up that day and, and, he, and he says, yeah, no, today I woke up and I was happy. But you never really get that sense from him. So, so in that, in that, sort of sense like I feel like Willis's performance missed the mark a little bit for me I guess I, I I understand what you're saying is that maybe he's not quite happy because this is a burden you know that he has this superhero or he is this but how much of a superhero is he he went in and he snuck in and he choked out a guy that was like kidnapping people like you know what I mean so it wasn't a real superhero I mean he he didn't even have any superpowers to get out of the pool they had to pull him out right Right. and I understand Waters is kryptonite or whatever the hell that was all about but still he didn't do anything that was a superhero thing he didn't have any strength or anything he just wrestled with this guy and choked him and then he freed freed his victims that was it so, so, he, so he was a good Samaritan he, he he was like a vigilante you know right so think of it um, think of it like more like baby steps so if this was a comic book you have 20 pages where you've got to tell the whole story. And in a comic book, there are certain expectations that a story works in a certain way and that the the characters, especially the heroes, are grandiose, over the top. Like think about a comic book featuring Superman. You know through the course of this comic book, Superman's going to fly and he's going to – you know, bullets going to be shot at his chest. And they're going to bounce out and he's going to use his heat vision and his cold breath and his super speed. And he's going to do all the amazing things and at the end of the book, everything's great and and – it's all fine. I think, again, trying to ground this more in, in a realistic portrayal of how this might actually work, uh, you get this – again, they, they, he deliberately has this slow pace. And I think you're right. I think Bruce Willis's character is probably clinically depressed. And you find out through the course of the story that you know he met Robin Wright's character when they were young, when they were in college, and he was a football star because – you late, you know, you learn that he's got exceptional strength and he can't be hurt. And you got to think those are great qualities if you're going to play professional football, which is probably why he was such a good athlete. He had these natural abilities that, although he maybe didn't understand what they were at the time, it gave him a natural edge. But he understood them enough 
that he realized if I want to play football and be a star, I can be and I will be. But he's met this woman. He loves this woman. He wants to spend his life with her. In order to do that, he has to give up this passion for football. And through the course of the story, you sort of – all of these details are revealed. And and I I think that – in the back of his mind has always been a sore spot, uh, although they never actually come right out and say it. You know, maybe that's part of the, the the reason he's depressed is he didn't get to live his dream. He got the girl, which is great, which obviously made him happy for a long time. But when we pick up this movie, he's now lost the girl. So he's given up his dream and now he's lost the girl that he gave up his dream to have. And he doesn't know what to do with his life. He's working as a security guard. You know, his life didn't go where he thought it was going to go and you know we get the uh uh you know the event of the train crash we have the introduction of uh of samuel jackson's jackson's character sort of opening his eyes to the bigger possibilities and to your point where he talks about you know i wake up every day and i'm sad and then after the by the end of the movie once he's sort of accepted i have this these abilities i can do good things that other people maybe can't do I'm going to embrace this. Yes, I woke up today and I actually felt good. And now that he's got this, you know, again, baby steps. It's not just a light switch goes off or go, comes on and I go from being depressed to not being depressed. It doesn't work that way. It's a long, slow process. And, and, and I got the sense that by the end of the movie, we've seen him turn a corner. He's taken a first step. So to your point, when he goes into the house and he rescues the people that were in there, you know, uh, the parents have already been killed. Uh, he ends up uh, fighting with this bad guy. Doesn't do a very good job because he's never done this before. Eventually, though, good triumphs over evil, and it's his first step. Now, maybe he goes on to become a Superman-type character. We don't know, but as his first outing, we'll put one. We'll give him a W. It's not pretty, but at the end of the day, they don't ask how did it happen. Just did you get the win? Did you get the loss? He got the W and he's going to start to turn his life in a slightly different direction. I get what you're saying and I and I appreciate what you're saying and actually the way that you're you're laying it out makes a lot of sense to me so it's 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 winning me over in terms of his character because I guess my take was that scene where he um then goes and he's at the the breakfast table with his son and he's kind of yes. revealing to his son I am who you think I am. I yes. am a superhero. I do have these these powers. To me, I was looking for that scene to have uh, Willis's character have a bit more of a glint in his eye, and I felt it still wasn't there. Like, yeah, you know what yeah, I mean. I, like, right. Almost yes. like because then it was like, yeah, this guy could be a super. Then you're kind of excited, like, where's this gonna go? You know, and then you know at the end of the movie, like, where, okay, what does he like? I expected almost to see like, yes, I am, I am a superhero. You know, like more excited about it. He says that he's finally happy, but he doesn't really show it. So the one thing I did like about this movie, I do want to say. Oh, okay, it, I'm all it, ears. So hang on. Let me. Let me. Yeah. Okay. Lay it on me. Okay. You, you, you touch base on this. And I just want to reiterate this. Most comic book movies are like these big budget action pack movies that are, you know, thrill a minute. And the one thing that I did like about this movie is that it's a comic book movie, quote unquote. But it, it is at a, a, a you know, a slow, it's a little bit lower key. You know, so it's, so to me, it's it's interesting to see Bruce Willis cast in this role because we've also seen him in, in those mindless, big budget action movies, too. Right. So one thing that I did like about it was the fact that it was kind of a lower key approach, but I felt like it was a little bit just 
too low key, a little bit too slow. Like, like I understand tamping it down and taking a different approach to the superhero, um, you know, genre, which is great, which really didn't exist at this time anyway, as you mentioned. But I just felt it was just a little bit, a little bit too lackluster, you know. For okay, me. Let, let me. I, I, I think I can answer. I think I can shed some light on this. Please do. So, based on my reading. M. Night Shyamalan has, has in interviews and, and in writing, said that when he conceived of this story, he conceived of a, basically a three-act play, and what eventually became the movie Unbreakable was act one. Originally, everything you see in Unbreakable was going to be smushed into, if it was a two-hour movie, would have taken place in about 45 minutes as act one, and by the end of act one, he's he accepts that he's got these powers, and we move on to act two. And from what, what he's, he has said was, you know, I couldn't get this whole three-act thing to work. I had too many things I wanted to explore. I felt – and I know you're going to hate this. He felt that exploring the origin story of these characters uh, was, was a more uh, interesting story to at least test the waters. Again, you wouldn't do a movie – well, they certainly do movies now – where you come up with an origin story. Like if I go to see another Superman movie that's an origin story, exactly to your point – I'm not interested. I know how Superman became Superman. Give me something else. He's a character I know and I recognize. But M. Night Shyamalan was like, I'm creating a world from the ground up. I'm giving you characters nobody has seen before. I need to spend the time establishing the characters in the world, especially this hero and villain relationship. And he ultimately scrapped Act 2, scrapped Act 3, made Act 1 the whole movie, and said that you know maybe someday down the road he would potentially do act two and act three as a part two and a part three of the story but he was very satisfied that this one act became a full movie and here it is so 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 what you're saying is that he sort of originally envisioned this as a trilogy and so but he just decided to make the the one movie so if if that being said if it comes out that M. Night Shyamalan is going to go back and rename this uh, Unbreakable Episode 4, A New Hope. I'm going to lose it. <laughs> <laughs> so building on that, for people who maybe aren't as familiar with where this has gone. So we have Unbreakable from 2000. And then in uh, 2016, there was another M. Night Shyamalan movie called Split. And it, it was uh, – sorry, I'm just pulling up the entry here. It starred James McAvoy, who uh, – Again, was Professor Xavier in the new X-Men movies, but he's done a lot of great uh, movies as well. He was in The Last King of Scotland and a number of other uh, very well-received, critically acclaimed movies. He's a very uh, gifted actor. Um, and this movie, Split, uh, you find out at the very end of Split that it takes place in the same universe as Unbreakable uh, because there is reference to the events in Unbreakable in the very last scene of Split. Now, you don't need to know that to enjoy the movie. It's just a little wink, wink. If you watch Split and you've seen Unbreakable, you're like, oh, this could be interesting. And so in January, two months from now, a third movie is coming out called Glass. And it features David Dunn's character from Unbreakable, Samuel Jackson's character from Unbreakable, Mr. Glass, hence the name of the movie being Glass. And... Um, uh, McAvoy's character from Split. The three characters all sort of come together. Now, I don't necessarily know if this was his Act 1, Act 2, Act 3 that he had originally conceived, but we are going to get a follow-up to these characters 
in some sort of new – I don't want to say adventure because I don't think it's going to be billed as an adventure. Uh, in some new sort of uh, – I don't even want to call it a superhero movie, but a new film featuring these characters. Let's leave it at that and see where it goes. The trailer, if you're even a marginal fan of Unbreakable and Split, looks great. Uh, I, I personally can't wait to go see it in January. Um, but Split, which was billed as a horror movie – and in none of the media when it came out was it in any way tied to Unbreakable. They're just like, M. Night Shyamalan has back. He's He's been rejuvenated. He's got some new ideas. He's giving you a horror movie. You haven't had a horror movie from him? Go. And it got very well. It got a lot of critical acclaim. It did very well um, on video. It made a lot of sales. It did well in the box. I mean, it wasn't a huge runaway hit, but it got people back into the theaters after movies like the village and the lady in the water and the happening, which were all pretty bad movies from this guy. He took some time off. He came back. He did split. People went in, they enjoyed it. And then at the end they got that little, aha, this is part of his expanded universe. So we'll see where that goes. I got to say, I'd never heard of split. You just mentioned it. So I just, I was just looking it up on IMDb. But the one thing that I, that I do say I would, I like about it is I see that Betty Buckley's in it and she was the mom in eight is enough. She was Abby Bradford. So I'm like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Maybe I will like that movie after all. As long as it's got a tie to an old Gen X stuff. That there I like. go. It's all good. So one thing before we, uh, we wrap this up, I, I noticed one thing at the beginning of this movie, the movie started off and it gave a bunch of stats. And I wanted to talk to you about this for a second. I'm just going to, I'm just going to read out the stats that the movie gives at the very beginning okay. on the screen. Yeah. It, it mentions that there's uh, an average of 35 pages and 124 illustrations in a comic book. And uh, issues range in price from a dollar to over $140,000. Uh, it mentions that 172,000 comics are sold in the U.S. every day. And the average collector, this is the one that I was interested in. The average collector owns 3,312 comics. And we'll spend approximately one year of his entire life reading them. So I wanted to ask you this, Caveman, because you, uh, you're, a, you're an avid comic book collector. Um, so the average collector owns 3,312 comics. That's so many. How many comics do you own, Cave? All right. Let's just say, Chris, you and I together will make the average. So, <laughs> so I would say my collection is around 6,000 issues. So wow. you probably have three or four comics at your house. You add those to my collection. We divide that number in half because there's two of us. We're going to hit around 3,000. We're going to come in pretty close to that average. Oh, my God. I wasn't expecting – was, when you answered that way, I thought you meant that me plus you would equal the average collector. So you have about 3,000. So you now have, we're 6,000. That's again, incredible. We're talking How do you physical, have so many comic books? I'm coming down to your house. I want to hang out. We're talking physical paper yeah. books. Yeah. Now, if we talk digital comics, which obviously we're not no. a thing in no, 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 no. We don't count those. I'm talking comic you know, books. Yeah. I have terabytes of, of storage full of digital comics, but actual paper comics, yeah, my collection is around 6,000 issues. I've got – so typically comics are stored at home in what they call a long box. It's a white box and uh, yep. it holds, uh, let's say three, let's say 300 to 350 issues in a box. Typically um, I have, I think 35 boxes in the basement. Holy smokes. And so what would you say is the comic that you have the most issues of? It would probably be Batman with Superman be, or with Spider-Man being a very close second. Because if you recall in our last podcast. You mentioned you like Spider-Man. Yeah. Spider-Man was my guy. But when I got back, so I was Spider-Man, 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 Spider-Man all my life. I went away to university for a few years, didn't have any money, didn't have anywhere to store the books, stopped buying comics 100% out, just done. 
when I came back from university and I finally got my own place and I got my own job and I went back to comics as something I had always enjoyed, I started to read Batman comics. And so for the last 20 years, Batman has been my number one choice. And now that I have a job and a little bit of disposable income, I've made a point of going to pull back issues of Batman, which is why my Batman collection is bigger than my Spider-Man collection uh, because I haven't really made any effort to go back and buy old Spider-Mans and I stopped reading Spider-Man in 1994, 1993. So, yeah. My comic book collection is limited to about maybe 50 comics, something like that. Uh, The vast majority of which are Richie Rich comics. (laughs) And then I have a couple of Battlestar Galactica comics and I have the oversized Star Wars and all that stuff that we talked about before. Uh, I don't have a lot. I give them all to my son. My son's nine. He's got them all. He loves Richie Rich. I went upstairs tonight when I was saying goodnight to him and he was laying in bed and he was reading Richie Rich. I'm like, yes, that's so cool. (laughs) So he just loves that. I don't know if I, I told this story on an early podcast, one of the first couple podcasts, and I'll just reiterate it now. And and I just want to get your reaction to it. So I went down to Fan Expo. You and I talked about this last week. I was at Fan Expo 2016. You were there. We ran into each other. It was all great. I was there with my son and we went out to the floor and we were looking for a vendor because my son wanted to buy Richie Rich comics, right? And so we went out there and of course, let's just put it this way. You go to a, an event like that where there's people that are like, like yourself, that are just like unbelievably advanced collectors of this stuff. They have thousands of them and they're all into the superheroes, you know, Spider-Man, Batman. You mentioned Richie Rich, like people look at you like you're like, like, and it's so funny because it's like, this is like geeks, like, like ostracizing me as being like an even worse geek, you know, <laughs> is basically what it is. And like, so everywhere we went, I'm like, hey man, you got Richie Rich comics? He's like, man, what do you think I am, man? You think I'm a geek or something? Like, I'm like, okay, move on to the next day. Hey man, you got any Richie Rich comics? He's like, man, I don't think so, man. I'm not a geek. I'm like, geez, actually you are a geek. That's why you're here. But anyway, the, the thing was, so we went to this, this big, huge comic book collector guy. He had this unbelievable display everything under the sun like it was just all the superheroes and uh, my son i said i i sent him up there and my son walks up to him and goes do you have any richie rich comics he's like richie rich and he looks around he looks side to side and he reaches under the table and he pulls out a richie rich he's got one and he goes here take it and don't tell anyone but richie rich was my favorite when i was a kid too I was like, yes. <laughs> so there's more than one of us out there in the world, even amongst the uh, the comic book geeks. But uh, yeah, so overall, uh, the movie, um, you know, it disappointed me a little bit. Um, sometimes so we get, me, yeah, go ahead. Let me, it was one more thing I wanted to just touch on before you uh, tell us how, how much you dislike this movie one more time. Um, one <laughs> of the things that, uh, so I mentioned last week, when I first saw this movie in the theater, I, I loved it. I thought it was great. And I went and saw it again the next night with a different group of friends. And uh, afterwards, we, we, you know, we had a few beverages and a little bite to eat and we talked about the movie. And you got to think, this is, was a bunch of comic book nerds who had not had a comic book movie uh, since Batman in 89. And so we were very excited about like, hey, is this potentially a turning point for this for the film genre? Are we going to start seeing comic book movies? Is this going to be a big hit? Unfortunately, it wasn't a big hit. We didn't really see mainstream comic book movies for quite a while after this. Uh, I mean, we started to get things like the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, which certainly started to move things in that direction and demonstrate that there was money in these movies if they were made uh, if they were made right. If you were true to the source material and you actually took them seriously, um, but as comic book nerds, we spent a lot of time talking about it and what we like, what we not like. And and with my group of friends, a lot of us at the time were working at Blockbuster Video or had worked at Blockbuster Video or many of us had studied film in college and university. So, you know, it wasn't just a, hey, 
Wasn't Bruce Willis great in that movie? Yeah, he was great. Wasn't Samuel Jackson great in that movie? Yeah, it was great. It was more of a almost like a a university discussion in a lecture. We started to analyze and pick apart the movie. And uh, some of the points we've we've already talked about, things like the the stylistic shots of the camera to to replicate a, a you know panels in a comic book. But one of the things that that I found interesting was the color palette, the choice of color palette throughout this movie, uh, which I'm sure you picked up on. Oh yeah, it was uh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it wasn't subtle. Uh, well, it sort of was. So, I mean, all the characters had a color palette that, that represented them. So Bruce Willis's character was sort of the muted green, the earth tones. He was dressed in greens and beiges, uh, you know, these very sort of subdued colors, almost to, to represent that he, you know, he's just a man among the crowd. Uh, he, he Although he has these extraordinary powers, he's not taking steps to stand out. Uh, as opposed to... Um, Samuel Jackson's character always was in purple, bright purple, fluorescent purples. When he's a young kid, his the present his mom buys him the comic book is wrapped in purple purple uh, wrapping paper. When he's born, his mother's wearing a purple dress. We see his mother a couple of times through the course of his life. She's always dressed in purple. He's always dressed in purple. Um, and then at in the towards the end of the movie. When Bruce Willis basically accepts, okay, I have powers and I want to do the right thing, and and he goes to uh, Grand C- I assume it's Grand Central. I'm not sure if that's what it's called in Philly, but the main terminal, and he just sort of stands among the people, and as they brush into him, he starts getting the mental flashes. Did this person do a bad thing? Did this person do a bad thing? And he gets three or four uh, sort of flashes. He gets one of a lady who's stealing jewelry. He gets one of a guy leaning out the side of a car window and basically, uh, you know, uh, perpetrates a hate crime. He throws stuff at people that are different mm-hmm. than him. It says horrible things. You see a guy, a college student who you assume is going to uh, uh, take sexual advantage of this woman who's passed out. Uh, and then eventually you get the 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 main villain that he tackles, this, this person who has uh, broken into this home, killed some people, kidnapped this family. You probably assume there are other atrocities that weren't seen. And, and you know, fortunately, we don't have to see them, but you kind of put two and two together and figure terrible things have happened. And in each case, these characters in his flashback are wearing very bright colors. The jewel thief is wearing a bright red jacket. The uh, the guy who is committing this hate crime is wearing a bright yellow shirt. The college student is wearing almost a fluorescent green, uh, lime green jacket. And then the bad guy, sort of the worst of the worst, is wearing head-to-toe fluorescent orange jumpsuit. Uh, almost to emphasize, the bad guys are going to be in these bright colors and – the brighter the color, the more they have on them, the worse their crime. And it was this progression. And this is something you see in comic books all the time where both the heroes and villains have recognized outfits. You know Superman wears the blue tights, the red cape. Uh, you know Spider-Man has the red and blue outfit. Like they're very vibrant colors so that you can immediately identify them among the crowd. Uh, you know, It's just as a part of the storytelling, if you had to read through a comic and go, wait, was Superman in that last page? Hold on. I didn't see him anywhere because he was dressed – the same as everybody else in this in this unbreakable movie um it's almost like m night Shyamalan sort of flipped that and he's made the the villains are always wearing these bright colors and uh if you go back i mean i know you're not going to go back because you didn't necessarily like it that much but if if the listeners are going to go back and watch it maybe they haven't watched it recently keep your eye on the colors pay attention to who's wearing what color is it a bright color is it a muted color who's wearing the same colors over and over again and by the end of the movie Bruce Willis' son in the last scene is wearing a green shirt sort of to, to uh, you know, reflect the green 
that his father like, – not that it's – I'm sure it's not a deliberate choice by the character, but it was definitely a deliberate choice by the director to sort of represent that the son and the father, you know, they're patching up this relationship and the son you know, wants to be like his father and he's wearing this green shirt. And so I just thought the color play, the choice of colors, the way color was used in this movie was done in a very deliberate way uh, that once you pick up on it, I found for me it really uh, added another level of enjoyment to the movie. Okay, I again the way that I would counteract that was I just took the whole thing as just more of stylistic. You know, it's just more stylistic stuff that doesn't have a lot of substance in the film. That was my take on it. Fair enough, fair you enough. Know, it's two different takes on it, that's all. Uh anyway, on that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. Uh I'm I think I need to have a beverage. If you don't mind, <laughs> in order in order to do this segment with you, I, I've oh. been sneaking mine all the way. Okay, now, well, that's the best in thing. A previous podcast, I think one of the very first times I guessed it on this pod. Uh, now, I, when I have a beverage, I like to have it in a glass with lots of ice. You the can't drink. Is, you can't drink that when you're recording. What are you doing? When you drink that when you're recording. You hear the ice clinking yes, around in the glass, and you gave me that feedback. You're like, hey. If you want to have a drink when you're doing this, that's fine. But you got to cut out the ice cubes. So, yep. <laughs> yeah. so, so or have a beer like me and just open it on the air. Yeah, <laughs> it's all good. I, I made sure that my beverage was nice and cold and I didn't need ice cubes. So uh, nice. while it, you're opening yours, I'm taking the last sip of mine. Still amaretto and Coke? Is that the, 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 the beverage of choice? Um, not tonight. I moved on to something a little different, Very a little nice. more seasonal. But uh, yeah. Very Anyone good. who's going to get me a secret Santa, DiSerrano, it's my beverage of choice. Nice. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions related to this film. Okay. Okay. Fire away. You know, just in general. Now, we uh, one person that we did not talk about in this movie was Robin Wright. And I thought she was fantastic in this movie. She's pretty much good in everything. You know, that, I was just about to say, Chris, is there anything she's been in that you didn't like her performance? Uh, her marriage with Sean Penn. Yeah, you could call that a performance. I'll, I'll do that. Uh, but other <laughs> than that, she was obviously in this movie, you know, because she played Audrey Dunn, you know, Bruce Willis's character's wife. Um, but my question to you is, what in what movie did Robin Wright make her feature film debut in? I'm fairly certain that's the movie I was watching a mere two hours ago, The Princess Bride. Yes, it is. Congratulations. It was The Princess Bride. A nice, easy one to start you off. Um, we're going to flip things over and talk about Samuel L. Jackson for a second here, because he made one of his first screen appearances as a man holding up people as an armed robber in an Eddie Murphy film. Can you name the movie? Yeah. Um, Coming to America. That's correct. Yes, it was. In the McDonald's or the McDowell's, I should McDowell's. say. McDowell's. It was they the McDowell's. They have the Big Mac. We have the Big Mac. The Big Mac. They have 12 beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese on a sesame seed bun. Our buns have no seats. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned you're a huge comic book collector. How You said 6,000 comic books? Yeah, that sounds about right. Unbelievable. Now, obviously, we don't. Some of these comic books out there, they can be worth a lot of money, right? Yeah. Can you name the most valuable comic book in the world? I would. I have to believe it's Action Comics number one, the first appearance of Superman. Very good. <laughs> Bonus marks if you know how much that uh, a copy sold for at auction in 2014. Uh, I want to say about 1.8 million. 3.2 million dollars. Wow. Unbelievable. Chris, ask me how many of those I have in my collection. Uh, how many? Exactly zero. How many Richie Rich billions number 74 do you have though? I got you there. Okay. I have the same amount of action comics as I have Richie Rich. <laughs> okay. Uh, so one thing we, we mentioned before about you said that, you know, this movie wasn't a huge hit. And if you actually take a look at the box office of that year, a couple movies that uh, finished ahead of it were things like, oh, um, Big Mama's House, The Nutty Professor 2, The Clumps, and What Lies Beneath. But What Lies Beneath? Do you remember that movie? 
I never saw it, but I do know of the movie. Oh, God, it was awful. It was terrible. I don't know how that movie made more money than, that, than anything else. Anyway, uh, so the movie was not a humongous success. You know, it was made for $75 million and it, it only made $95 million, so it made a little bit of money. But what I'd like you to do, this is a tough one. These, these questions get harder as we go. In order, I'd like you to, to name M. Night Shyamalan's top three grossing films. One, two, and three, go. Uh, Got to be Sixth Sense, number one. That's number one. That's correct. Are we talking just about the movies he directed or movies yes. he has a credit on? No, movies he directed. Okay, so Stuart Little is out because he didn't direct it. He just had screenwriting credit. Okay, so you want the next two. Um, hmm. Uh, was Unbreakable? No, uh, maybe Split. Let's no. Uh, let's go with Split. No, I'm sorry. The next one is Signs. And, oh, yeah. And then The Village, surprisingly. Really? Enough. Yeah, The Village made wow. lots of money. Even crappy movies make a lot of money. Speaking of crappy movies, Bruce Willis has never <laughs> been nominated for an Oscar, but he has, however, been nominated for several Razzies for the worst performance. Can you name any of the six films for which he's been nominated six. for a Razzie? There's just you name wow. one of them. Just name <laughs> one. Six, six movies he's been nominated for a Razzie for. Worst performance. Uh. Just name one. The whole nine yards. No, I'm sorry. That's not the correct. whole 10 yards. No, no, not right. Hudson Hawk from 91. Remember that? Yeah. God, that Chris, was bad. Tonight. What's it that? is on TV tonight. Oh, Hudson geez. Hawk. I saw it in the lineup. In 1994, he was nominated for both North and Color of Night. And in 1998, he was nominated for three films, The Siege, Mercury Rising, and of course, Armageddon. Oh, not Armageddon. He was great. Now, for your final question earlier, I mentioned rather controversially Adrian Brody's performance in The Village because he went full as a reference to Robert Downey Jr. seen in Tropic Thunder only. So, Caveman, in Tropic Thunder, what other actor did Robert Downey Jr. refer to as having gone full Sean Penn. Yes, he did. Bonus if you can name the movie that he was in. Uh, Sam, I am. Yeah, I close. I am Sam. Close. I am Sam. Very good. Remember, so <laughs> remember that he went home empty-handed. Remember? Yep. God, his yep. performance was good. God, I'm not a huge, uh, um, I'm not a big Robert Downey Jr. fan overall, but man, in that movie, Tropic Thunder. <laughs> He was good. He was Unbelievable. Really good. Man, oh man, was he good in that movie. Uh, anyway, so so that there it is. So congratulations. You got most of them. You know, you, you, you got most of them. You did a few, missed a few, but that's okay. I got to stump you from time to time. Um, yeah. As we mentioned, next week, Yancey is going to join us on the show. So that's going to be fantastic. We're so glad to have Yancey back. Let's, oh, we like that. Round of applause there for Yancey. In the meantime, if you want to reach out to us on Twitter, at Amaron underscore DM, you'll find Derek there. At Yancey Eaton, like I said, Yancey will be back next week. And at C. McBride is me. PopGoesYourWorld.com is the website. And make sure to leave us a review on iTunes if you don't mind. Until next week, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thank you for listening to the Pop Goes Your World podcast. Continue the conversation on Twitter at C. McBrien or at Yancey Eaton. Please consider leaving a review for the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 